Welcome to Founders of Nations. Episode 3, Afghanistan. I switched the music around this week to something I prefer, and we'll probably use that going forward. Last week we saw the founding of Andorra, a tiny country, by a giant of Europe, Charlemagne. This week we'll take a look at the country that has been a perpetual reminder to empires that they are mortal. And one of the men who took part in this and helped set up what we know of today as Afghanistan. Afghanistan is a landlocked country that sits at the intersection of some big sections of Asia. South Asia and India are to the southeast, Iran is to the west, and China is to the east. Central Asia, meanwhile, is to the north, with Turkic cultures and the Mongols. It is filled with many different tribes who entered the land over successive invasions. They often integrated, but because of the large number of mountains and remote areas, it was also easy for pockets of people to never integrate, and so we get a large number of people groups that are very distinct from their neighbors. That's been going on for probably a thousand years at least. A short list of the major tribes in Afghanistan includes the Pashtuns, who are the largest population-wise, followed by the Tajiks, Hazaras, Uzbeks, Turkmen, and Amikes. No idea how to say that last one. These tribes can be further divided into many different types and places in Afghanistan. But we're not going to get into all that today. That would take a whole 30-minute section by itself. This tribal nature is one of the defining features of Afghanistan, and it makes figuring out the founding father pretty difficult whenever you talk to different Afghanis. Uh, however, I was able to kind of narrow it down to two men in my conversations with them, one man named Ahmad Shah Durrani, and the other, Mirwais Hotak. The former is called Baba, or father, and the latter, Neka, or grandfather. Looking at external sources, it becomes a bit more obvious, as Durrani is commonly seen as the main founder of Afghanistan, because he founded a longer-lasting and larger dynasty. But remember, this podcast chooses founders based on who is commonly thought of as the founder, as we're primarily looking to understand people a little better, not necessarily have an authoritative look at history here. So I had the choice of doing both in one 30-minute episode, or choosing one. 30 minutes for both is a bit too brief for me, so I chose to do Mirwais Hotak for a few reasons. Number one, most of the Afghanis that I'm friends with gave him as their answer. And number two, because the Anthology of Heroes recently did an episode on Durrani, so you can definitely head over there to get a good take on him. I'll have that link up and a little taste of what that one sounds like on the podcast minisode, as well as on the episode webpage at www.langforlife.com founders. That's Lang like language for the number four, not writing it out, but the numeral, and then life, L-I-F-E. Now, I said I would be doing Mirwais, but after looking at Further research about him, I found that his mother, who is also a big part of his story, obviously, is referred to as grandmother of the Afghans. So we will be including a good chunk on her as well. So anyways, off we go into some background information. Around the 13th century, Mongol invasions hit Afghanistan, and they were under Mongol rule until the mid-14th century when Timur, Timur the Lane, Tamerlane, however you want to call him, took over. 
Now, you can find some pretty sweet podcasts on both of these empires. The Timurids lasted until the early 16th century, when the rise of the gunpowder empires forced them to collapse. At that point, three empires split up the land that we know now as Afghanistan. The Safavids from Iran, the Mughals from India, and the Uzbeks from the north. It seems like the Pashtun tribe mostly rose along with the Safavids and Mughals in the 16th century. There had formerly been a lot of infighting between the tribes, as you would expect from the history of the world, and even the Pashtuns had infighting. But with these empires now ruling the south of Afghanistan, the Abdali and Gilzai Pashtuns had achieved a kind of higher level of prominence under their rule. They could get resources and legitimacy from the empire that ruled them, Taking control of a region as a governor or tribal governor elevated many of these petty chieftains to higher power than they had ever had before. This gave them valuable administrative experience that would come in handy later, and it also helped them to be able to have a better understanding of working with the different tribes. Into this environment comes the beginnings of what we consider the modern-day state of Afghanistan. The Gilzai were in the Safavid area, specifically Kandahar area, but they had maintained good relations with the Mughals and the Safavids both. The Safavids were in what seemed like an endless series of wars with the Ottomans to the west, and this, along with some other problems, was causing them to go into a slow terminal decline. It hadn't been noticed yet in Kandahar, but it was definitely happening. It is said that the Gilzai had a specific noble family that had been working for centuries to help the Pashtuns. They were from a branch of the Gilzai called the Hotaki. And so that's where we get this last name. Sometime in the mid-late 17th century, a man named Salim Khan Hotak married a woman, Nazo Toki. These two were both from families that were heads of their respective tribes. The husband doesn't have a lot of background that I can find, but the wife, Nazo, was highly educated and is remembered to this day as Nazo Anna, which means Nazo the grandmother. She was born in 1651 to a tribal leader who ensured she was well-educated. She is remembered for many things. She's seen as kind of a prototype of an Afghan woman. Described as courageous, kind, generous, and sophisticated. Mothers in Afghan culture are revered, and I found a number of stories of women who were famous. We'll probably get an episode on that in the future if I can get back around to Afghanistan. Back to Nazo. She contributed to many things in Pashtun and Afghan culture, and nowadays there are many schools named after her in Afghanistan. Here are some things we know about her. One of the driving forces behind all the things she was known for was seemingly a hope to unite the Pashtun tribes against the Safavids. One way Nazo did this was by being one of the forces pushing for the Pashtunwali Code, which was basically Pashtun oral tradition and law, to be recognized as a sort of inner-tribe set of laws that would help bring the tribes together. Another story about her is that when her father was killed in battle, her brother went to avenge him and left Nazo in charge of the fortress. Well, she slapped on a sword and defended the fortress along with the men against raiders while the brother was gone. She's also known for a 2,000-verse collection of poetry that is famous among Pashtuns especially. That's right, she's a warrior poet. I'll read a bit of an excerpt here, which just so happens to be the only excerpt I can find in English. Uh, This one is about the shortness of life. 
dew drops from an early dawn flower, as a tear drops from a melancholy eye. O oh, beauty, I asked, what makes you cry? Life is too short for me, it answered. My beauty blooms and withers in a moment, as a smile which comes and forever fades away. It's pretty excellent. The final thing Nazo is known for was the dream she had on the night her son was born in 1673. An old Pashtun hero of legend, Sheikh Betneka, told her to care for her son as he would rise up to bless his country. This son, as you may have guessed, would be Mirwais Hotak, later given the title Neka, the grandfather. He was born in 1673, and as you would imagine, having parents who were both children of tribal elders and now and his nad now at this point being the leader of his tribe, he had a pretty high education. And it's also said that his mother told him about this dream many times and about his destiny. He's made out basically to be a sort of perfect gentleman ruler, similar to how Charlemagne is represented as we talked about last time on the Andorra episode. He was wise, honorable, convincing, strong, and handsome. He would have all the tools needed to succeed at whatever he did. His father and other tribal leaders in the area had done their best to use trade to build up their tribes, and this meant keeping up good relations with the Safavids, who were their current overlords, and the Mughals, who seemed to kind of go back and forth in Kandahar. Mirwais grew up and continued on with this policy when he became the tribal leader. This was all going well until about 1704 when the Safavid ruler sent a new governor, Gorgon, to the province because there had been some rebellions. Gorgon is said to have been brutal in his governorship, and it's said that that's why he was sent. It's recorded that Mirwais was looked to be kind of the leader among the different tribes to help fix this situation. Well, he contacted the Safavid court four times, but was not able to get any answer from them, and eventually, either after a rebellion or when Gorgon found out about these messages to the Safavid court, Mirwais was arrested, and then he was sent to the court. Now, I don't know if you were just paying attention right there, but Mirwais had been trying to contact the court, and now Gorgon thought the best idea was just to send him there. Well, this is where I would usually put in my clip of the week, because it takes me back to a skit where a comedian said his wife sent him to his room, which was where he wanted to be in the first place. But since that comedian has ended up doing some terrible things and is now in prison, I will not sully Mirwais's episode with that. Suffice to say, Mirwais was probably very excited to be sent to the Safavid court. So in his early 30s, Mirwais found himself at the court of the Safavid Shah, which is what they would call their king. Mirwais quickly set about winning the Shah and his court over to his side. With all the talents we talked about earlier, he was able to get this done pretty quickly. Now one of his main goals, it seemed, in doing this was to be permitted to go on the Hajj. Well, that's one of the pillars of Islam that every Muslim should do in their life, going on a trip to Mecca to worship there. Now, there were undoubtedly religious notions behind the Hajj, because his mother was known as being very religious, and uh, he also probably inherited that. But the political motives, I'm sure, had something to do with it. Because while in Mecca, he had extensive talks with religious leaders there, and secured a fatwa against the Safavids, and specifically Gorgon. A fatwa is basically a document that is required any time a Muslim wants to go to war against other Muslims. 
And he was able to get this because the Safavids were trying to kind of forcibly convert his tribe to their brand of Islam. He then returned to the Safavid court with the fatwa in hand, and he somehow failed to mention that to the Shah or to the other people at the court. And uh, soon after, in 1708, he was actually able to convince them to send him back into Afghanistan and to be kind of an overseer for Gorgon, because uh, I guess he had convinced them that he was so good and that Gorgon was so dangerous to trying to make a rebellion of Afghanistan just by his brutality. When Mirwais arrived back, he immediately began organizing resistance by secretly setting a meeting of the National Assembly of Tribal Elders. At this meeting, Mirwais showed the fatwa and used it along with a persuasive speech to get a united army together, fulfilling what his parents had wanted. In spring 1709, he led the rebellion and they disposed of Gorgon and his army. Now there are a few different stories about how all this happened, so I'll tell you one. He invited Gorgon to go to a country estate, and after filling them up with wine and food, he assassinated Gorgon and his entourage. He then marched on Kandahar with his forces and the citadel, which he was able to quickly take. After he did this, he gave a pretty good speech that we have a snippet of that I enjoyed. Quote, If there are any among you who have not the courage to enjoy this precious gift of liberty now dropped to you from heaven, let him declare himself. No harm shall be done to him. He shall be permitted to go in search of some new tyrant beyond the frontier of this happy state. End quote. That's a good quote. I like that one. He took the title Prince of Kandahar and General of the National Troops, but would not take the name King. Soon after this, the, I'm sure, stunned Safavid Shah sent an army to retake the region around Kandahar. Well, Mirwaish and his tribes soundly defeated this, and another force sent Rin right after it. A third force was mustered, numbering around 30,000 men, which was a pretty huge army for this part of the world at this time. Now, this force seems to have gotten the better of the Afghanis pretty quickly on, and they wanted to negotiate. But in the spirit of his uncle Gorgon, and probably looking for revenge, Kushra refused to negotiate. I guess he was just hoping to totally annihilate these people. Well, the whole if I win, I'm killing everyone plan backfires again. If you can learn anything from history, it's never make people fear that you're going to exterminate all of them, because for some reason that seems to light a fire under them. So a little later on in 1711, the Afghan army, not giving up, instead was able to ambush and kill almost the whole 30,000-man army, leaving only around 700 alive, not including Kusra. After this, one more smaller army was sent in, but it was also defeated easily, and that really kind of cemented Afghan rule of the area. It seems Mirwais did much work to bring the tribes together from this point on, but he suffered the same fate as Charlemagne's brother. He died too quickly. In 1715, after less than a decade in power, he died of natural causes. Now this wouldn't have been too bad, except for what came next. His brother, Abdul Aziz, who took the reins after Mirwais's death, wanted to make a treaty with Safavids, but was promptly assassinated by the tribes. Or maybe Mar Mirwais's son, Mahmoud. We aren't really certain. Probably it was them working together. Well, Mahmoud was able to very quickly dominate the region, and surprisingly to everyone, he was actually able to invade into the Safavid area 
and march into the capital and become Safavid Shah. This is how much the Safavids have been suffering from these wars and all the internal troubles they've been going on, that they'd kind of just become a paper tiger at this point. And Mahmud figured that out and was able to just take over Safavid land, basically. So he became the ruler of the Safavid Empire. Now, we talked about how the Afghanis had kind of had some experience administering their tribes around their area. But, you know, they're all going to have similar culture, even though they're different tribes. And it just seems like he wasn't really prepared to rule a bar, a large, multi-ethnic, multicultural empire. And it's likely that that, along with the same problems that these Safed rulers were already having, caused this to just be a terrible situation. Uh, there were some difficulties that they encountered, and then some mistakes were made. And he ended up just going insane, basically, and either died or was killed by his own men. There were two other rulers after this, but none of them could really hold things together. And by 1738, it had all fallen apart. So what was the legacy of this woman Nazo and her son Mirwais? A short-lived kingdom? No. It was the uniting of the tribes. It was a few decades of free reign for those tribes. And also his son's knockout punch at the Safavids. These things were instrumental in tilling the ground for the soon-coming and final empire of Afghanistan. So, were they the founders? Well, depending on who you talk to. But are they Anna and Neka, grand-founders? Nobody would disagree. If you want to know what happens next in Afghan history, go listen to the sister podcast Anthology of Heroes episode on Ahmad Shah Durrani I talked about earlier, the other man who is vying for the title of Father of Afghanistan. Uh, it's not going to take very long for him to come to power, less than 50 years, and he would really unite the tribes and have a long-lasting empire there. Also, don't forget to listen to the podcast intro's minisode if you want to find some more information on Afghanistan or these other people. Uh, I'm not going to have a whole lot of podcast information on that because I, am, I cannot find any podcast, basically, on that, but I will have some articles and some books that I'll talk about there. Next time, we'll learn about another country in the A's. Until then, I'll be doing a bit of an after show with thoughts about some other interesting things that we can learn about Afghanistan and what I learned from Mirwais and his mother. So if you want to stick around for those, great. If not, join us on the Founders of Nations Facebook group or on Twitter at Founders Nations or just go to the webpage and I will see you on country number four next time. One thing I definitely learned during all this was Afghani people's deference towards their mothers. I had no idea that it was such a big thing there. I think most cultures have special places for moms, but it definitely seems like traditional Afghan culture has a very high place for mothers, and that goes back a long way in their culture. Something I think we can all learn from and need to make sure that we keep in mind is Gorgon's nephew and his fatal mistake. Uh, we really need to avoid that in pretty much any situation, as he convinced his enemies that if he won, they would basically cease to exist. I can't tell you how many stories there are from history of small groups fighting to the bitter end and causing delays or massive casualties or even defeats to larger armies, all because they were convinced that there was no retreat available to them. A good leader can put this kind of fire in his soldiers' bellies without having the situation come upon him, 
And we see that a lot nowadays, I feel like, with coaches of sports teams. A lot of times the really good coaches have a way of making those players feel like everyone's against them and it's them versus the world. And meanwhile, on the other end of the spectrum, like Gorgon's nephew here, he just makes a terrible mistake by making it easy to put that fire in his enemy's bellies. By basically telling them he was not going to negotiate. It's just a terrible idea. Of course, in real life, we're not often going to be dealing with that kind of situation where it's life or death. But if you convince people in your normal life that you're doing something that's going to drastically affect their life, you can be sure you'll be giving them motivation to fight back hard for whatever it is you're trying to do. It's better to try to convince them slowly that things are kind of going their way, or at least that there's hope of their escaping the situation if it's something confrontational. Uh, As the old proverb says, If you want to boil a frog, you must turn the water up slowly. That's a Chinese proverb. I have some experience doing this, not in a confrontational way, but just with my family sometimes. If I introduce something slowly and try to kind of help my wife see why it might be beneficial, uh, it goes a lot better than if I say, I think we should blah, blah, blah. And uh, that usually leads to much discussion and heated conversations. So, always better not to confront your enemy, or in this case, your conversational partner, with some new idea that may seem dangerous or uh, crazy to them, because they do want to take a stand. And that's the same thing that was happening here against Gorgon's nephew, as he just gave the Afghans this idea that, okay, we're going to die if we don't fight this guy, so we better not give up. On the other end of the spectrum, from Terrible, was Mirweiss. Now with Mirweiss, I really had thoughts of Skanderbeg the whole time I was doing his episode. Uh, Skanderbeg was the Albanian founder, if you want to listen to that episode. They really remind me of each other. Their countries were dealing with similar situations when they came to power, and both of them managed to unite these independent groups to defeat much larger empires. And it actually turns out that the military victories were good, but what was even more important than that was the uniting of those peoples. That seemed to be even more important because nowadays both of them are seen as this kind of father of the nation, uniter of their peoples. So while neither of them saw the full impact of those effects and probably didn't dream that they would have such an impact on their countries hundreds of years down the road, they both did because of what they did with uniting their peoples. Past that, Mirweiss's seemingly steady temper and long-term thinking, something that I aspire to. Thinking about how he, he was able to adapt his trials into advantages for his cause, rather than having a kind of knee-jerk reaction that makes everything break, really speaks volumes about how to deal with those things in our own lives. So rather than trying to escape and run away when he was sent to the softfield court, he played it perfectly by being able to go on Hajj getting a softened court on his side. I mean, you just couldn't turn a disadvantage or a trial into something good any better, I think, than what he did. So I think it's so important in our own lives to be able to take setbacks and twist them in the right direction. This idea of turning a seemingly insurmountable problem into something great really hits me hard as it gets to the heart of what I believe as a Christian that Jesus, the Son of God, would be killed on a tree? 
seems like a terrible thing, but God was using that as the pinnacle of everything, destroying both death and sin. It just gets me excited to think about those kind of things happening because it always reminds me of this kind of what I think is the pinnacle of all things. Anyway, so this ability to see the silver lining, I guess you could say, leads to a very good example of Afghanistan's most famous trait, at least in America, Russia, and Britain, their ability to struggle against foreign invasions. They just don't know when to quit. And eventually, like I said earlier, they become the great humbler of empires. In America, we have this American Revolution flag with a snake on it, and it says, don't tread on me. Well, I think it was used well by us Americans during the Revolutionary War, but it's been going on for a long time in Afghanistan, and so I think they should probably own the rights to that flag as well, because you just don't want to tread on Afghanistan. So please, when you're planning on invading the world, remember, never start a land war in Russia or Afghanistan. <laughs>